This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Historic Souvenirs presents A Cyclist in Trepid Journeys, adapted from his book Pedal Power, Roy Sinclair and his partner Harlico from Japan, having cycled the length of Britain's mainland, take a ferry ride to Scotland's offshore islands. Sleepless nights by firelight, the stranger in this town. For Harlico, Coming from the teeming life of Tokyo, could the contrast be more extreme than to take a trip with our bicycles to experience life on Scotland's offshore islands of the Orkneys? We find physically and mentally we're in fine fettle to extend our ride in the far north of Scotland whence my ancestors come. Must explain, when each ounce carried on our bikes counts in the effort to cycle long distance, Domestic needs are, of necessity, very basic. Nevertheless, washing by hand along the way does have limitations. We stay overnight at John O'Groat's Youth Hostel, where the kindly proprietor, obviously bewildered by our unusual request, confesses, mm, A washing machine? Oh, my dears, I, I have nothing like that. The washing will have to wait. We make the most of the view from our upstairs twin room. Next day we're at the ferry terminus, lured by the prospect of making Kirkwall YHA by nightfall, where access to a washing machine awaits us. It's a 45-minute trip over Pentland Firth to the Isles of Orkney. Geographically, they're akin to the coastal plains and hills of East Scotland, with unrelenting erosion of the sandstone exposing a soft strata that falls over astonishing cliff faces. Here is Scarpa Flow, the Royal Navy Base. From a crowd of day-trippers who board the ferry with us in no time at all, all have gone from the ferry landing on tour buses of the island who expected them. But not us, left alone in an empty landscape. We look round. Just an ocean? And narrow road, it's the A961. Harlico cycles ahead, eager to explore this new terrain. I see she stopped. As I catch up, she shows me a forlorn grey church. Its graveyard headstones seem to point to 
to featureless grey sky. Together, now, we flick through gears to select one offering an easy cadence for the uncomplicated contours opening expanding views of the islands. An archipelago of 90 British Isles, most of them uninhabited, known for mild winters and gales with cool summers. The chill seeps through our jackets. When my Orkney's ancestors settled in Bluff on the bleak southern tip of New Zealand, they'd feel right at home there. Helped by the hills of Orkney being so easy on the muscles, Orkney's tourism board puts lots of effort to promoting cycling. A roaring tailwind would be a blessing. Reaching High Point, we're commanding views of one of the world's largest natural harbours, Scarpa Flow. In 1919, seven months after the armistice ended World War I, a German rear admiral, Ludwig von Ritter, ordered his sailors to scuttle their fleet of 74 ships interned in Scarpa Flow, rather than have them fall into British hands. Reaching the causeway, crossing gaps between small islands, we recognize the great concrete blocks and quarried rock intended during World War II to prevent any recurrence of an attack such as sunk HMS Royal Oak with more than 800 deaths. The enemy submarine, slipping unseen on a particularly high tide through a gap between islands, aims torpedoes at the slumbering British battleship on Scarpa Flow, escapes by the same gap. Never again, insists the British Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, directing rock and concrete obstacles block certain channels. Wire cages, filled with rubble encased in concrete, are a task entrusted partly to more than a thousand prisoners of war, captured in North Africa, then biding their time in Britain, waiting for the war to finish so that they could go home to Italy. Preserving their sanity and culture, prisoners of war set about building in their spare time from discarded material, a chapel. It stands today as a tourist attraction, visited often by the prisoners' descendants. The so-called Churchill Barriers now serve as a highway across four of the original sea causeways. The interdenominational chapel of the Italian prisoners offers more inspiration than the heady days of victory in Europe. The resourceful POWs crafted its altar, the altar rail, and holy water scoop from scrap. Wrought iron screen partitions the chancel, and painted glass windows depict Christian saints. They are testimony to the artistry of Domenico Ciacetti, a prisoner gifted as an artist. In those barbed wire surrounds, a beautiful place of worship emerges from two Nissan huts joined together. Above the altar is Ciocetti's masterpiece, a representation of Madonna and Child. Throughout the war, he carries a small reproduction of Niccolo Barabino's painting, Madonna of the Olives, 
1960, Ciocchetti returns to the Orkneys, funded by the BBC, not intending to work on the Italian chapel. Yet that is what he does, helped by the islanders. Three weeks later, the chapel is back to its original splendor for a rededication service that at least 200 locals attend. To me, the Italian chapel does more for Christian goodwill than does any of the great cathedrals of England. Ciocchetti's parting gesture is in a letter to all Orkney people, stating, The chapel is yours for you to love and preserve. I take with me to Italy the remembrance of your kindness and wonderful hospitality. I shall always remember and my children shall learn from me to love you. He returns home to his family in Moina, a pretty valley of northern Italy's Dolomite Mountains that could not differ more from where most Italian forces surrendered during the Battle of Alamein, during which they are separated from German forces. Trapped in the desert, they surrender to the Allies. The captured Italians quickly engender respect of captors for their zest, love of life. Their links to the Orkneys, long-lasting, are now recognized in a sister city accord between Moina and Kirkness. As Harlequin and I cycle over the last of the Churchill barriers, we see a ship half-submerged in the shallow bay. A vestige of war? We're on the downhill approach to Kirkwall when we bring our bikes suddenly to a stop by sharp braking on spotting the imposing stone buildings of Highland Park Distillery, just in time to tag on to the day's last whiskey tour. Gemma's our guide, extolling the excellence of its whiskey brewed from peaty Scottish single malts and fond memories of a local pastor whose illegal whiskey he reputedly hid in his pulpit his smuggling is detected in 1813, with the illicit still being taken over by the arresting officer. In an adjoining building is another peat kiln, and swallows in the rafters, says Gemma. It's a pity to boot them out, because they come all the way from Africa. 
after she gives a crash course in Highland Park's traditions. We each try a dram, then Gemma expertly steers us to the gift shop, who we don't buy that bottle of 30-year-old whiskey with 500 New Zealand dollars price tag, settling for cheaper souvenirs more in keeping with our carriage by bicycle. A fog descends eerily on the hill dwellings of Kirkwall as we locate the YHA. It's a friendly place near a supermarket. It has the promised laundry. The weather's still foggy on waking, so once outside, we are mere silhouettes to each other. As we clip on our pannier bags, cows, curious, mere meters away, watch us. They're gentle creatures. Cows, content to quietly munch their cud without a worry in the world. In no time at all, we'll be gone, and us forgotten. We glide our bikes down to the town's centre, dominated by the magnificent St. Magnus Cathedral, founded in 1137 AD, built of red sandstone. If that's all, the more so the Neolithic village archaeologists uncover, and from under the modern Kirkwall, a subterranean passage leading to a chamber dug out long ago beneath a dwelling since demolished, believed to be more than 1,000 years old. As we head westward, the mist disperses, revealing a landscape of rich earth shade. It's under an Asia sky. Everywhere we see a scene worthy of a cover of Scott's magazine. We're craving the taste of Orkney's special ice cream. Finally, we come by the Ring of Brodga, a curious circle of stones or henge monument of 60 tall stones in an exact circle of 50 metres radius, positioned to catch the first rays of midsummer sun.
The sense of peace at this World Heritage Site, where the sea lock of Stennes almost meets the freshwater lock of Harry, is magic. Compromised only by a craze Billy Connolly triggers in his World Tour of Scotland series by dancing naked among the stones. About half the original 60 tall stones still stand, one only just, and some having been split by lightning in 1980. Locals say, if you cut the Orkney soil, it bleeds archaeology. We're reluctant to leave this haven of biking days. Cyclists in the Isles of Orkney are assured of relatively easy hill climbs, face little traffic, and above all, enjoy a friendly rapport with locals. I feel a genuine pride in having travelled here, something I can't claim of Cornwall, where we began, despite the sheer beauty of that part of England. I considered acquiring an ancestral tartan of Clan Sinclair tartan for fun, Yet as much as I enjoy Scotland, its landscapes, its heritage and people, I am not Scottish. Once aboard the Finnish-built ferry, with its beautifully appointed lounge, we'll no longer experience the thrill of independence, progress powered by our own energy, powering our cycle wheels by one of the world's oldest, most successful mechanisms, the sprocket chain. It gives us the freedom to carry all we need, to camp out, to stop where we will to rest, investigate, simply to talk with people in the passing parade of humanity. What a contrast! Once we consign our bicycles to be cocooned deep in the ferry decks and issued with vehicle passes stating in fine print, please turn off car alarm. All too soon we'll transfer to rail for the journey back along the length of Britain and normal lifestyle in London. Arlico is happy, having discovered a European and Celtic history to compare with her own Japanese heritage. She has a flair for grafting the best features of others' culture onto her own. Exposed to foreign influence, she's intrigued to discover values akin to her own culture. It comes out in the chance encounters of the cycle ride along country paths, farmland and villages. There, the inhabitants may spare the time of day to talk. Difficult in London, where we arrive cradling an errant tooth, setting off a sinus infection. Thanks to our friend's invitation to her apartment, we're four days' respite in London. By then, we're craving the uncrowded outdoors of continental countryside, taking tickets for a flight over France to Nice on the French Riviera. Thank you. 
On our landing approach above the Mediterranean, we see fleets of stylish cruise ships. That explains the warning. Socialising in the resort city of Nice soon empties the pockets. We're flying low, as deep blue water mercifully gives way to tarmac in time as the Boeing 757 lands in continental Europe. It revives my dream years ago. Lie in bed, home in New Zealand, listening to wind furiously rattle the windows and dancing the drawn curtains, threatening to rearrange the room's contents. would it be to ride a bike to the Dauphine Alps and to the Grand Chartreuse Monastery the brilliant educator later known as Saint Bruno founded a thousand years ago beginning with a chapel in which he sought seclusion it intrigues me the background to the religious order sustaining itself on proceeds of monks sales of mysterious brew a soothing green liquid later hailed as the elixir of long life even if it resembles antifreeze liquid, the taste slightly peppery and intoxicating, 55% alcohol, we find it not so difficult to swallow, like one of those old-time medicines. These days, Chartres liqueurs still filter at Cave de la Chartres in Voiron, 25 kilometers from Grenoble. It's significant these valleys lie along the route of the supreme cyclists competing in the Tour de France. Now we're in France, it's our opportunity, as we pedal along in the slow lane in the wake of the 2006 Tour de France, our tyres brush the fading markings of well-wishers. The Tour de France is a defining national fervour of the French, attracting international attention. In day-to-day -day life, it accounts for the sincere encouragement bystanders voice to tourists who pass by on fully laden tour bikes. Near the summits at over 2,000 metres, they even cheer good-naturedly or clap. France is a nation with sympathy for cyclists. It's said every second motorist here is one. If passing cyclists, French law insists motor traffic give them a one-metre berth in town or one-and-a-half metres on rural roads, even so, an average of 250 cyclists die each year on the roads of France.
Cyclists, while touring France, use water bottles to catch the continuing stream of icy water flowing from fountains often adorned with summer flowers. Taste varies from fountain to fountain, but the buildings clinging precariously to steep escarpments are uniform in colour, predominantly orange and yellow ochre. We follow a camping sign, cross a wide river, pause at a drinking well. Yet this sign leads only to a crossroads without any road signs, an ongoing frustration for the cyclist in France on country roads. Hot and tired, we search in vain the roads in either direction before noticing a locked gate, guarding a merry celeste of camps, rustic to the extreme. Seemingly abandoned caravans are parked in their lots. Children's toys, discarded where they were last played with, convey the same impression. We find a friendly owner, bare-chested, whose accommodation is a huge, long mansion that has seen better days. He requires us, in accord with French law, to produce our passports. We look at our sad surroundings. Is this really France, the nation of the world's finest cuisine and wines, that created the world's fastest train and the Airbus? At least we've a bed for the night. Furnished a key to the gate, we may ride up the valley to a roadside cafe where the valley narrows, barely space for the river road and a commuter railway to squeeze through the gorge. We buy a slice of baguette, fill it with melted cheese and goodies as a welcome introduction to French taste. Next morning, one of my cycling gloves goes missing. Suspicion settles on one of the camp's three mischievous dogs. I scowl at the big black one, which senses my murderous intent and acts as if to lead me somewhere. I find my glove in reasonable shape. A small white terrier looks on accusingly. I refrain from throwing something at it. We leave on a long climb, zigzagging through forest, arriving sweating in a village called Levin, whose inhabitants group round tables, sipping wine from voluptuous glasses, shaded by umbrellas, children splashing in deep blue water pools outdoors. It must seem strange, from a village perspective, why foreigners on overloaded bicycles should arrive at the height of summer at noon and expect to do business. We see store owners take in pavement signs, and retreat behind closed doors. A couple disappears hand in hand. Even the post office doors close, locked. Now we know how, across rural France, the custom is to shut up shop at noon for two hours, just as our strenuous exertion brings us here. Having no reason to rush now, we pedal curiously through the restful narrow streets, the French long ago learnt the hot summers are for relaxing in early afternoon. Join us next week on Free FM 89.0, another edition of Historic Souvenirs. 
For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.